From CPR News, a special Colorado Matters today answering your questions about the COVID-19 vaccines. How will distribution be organized to avoid a free-for-all as individuals try to get vaccinated? I was just wondering if people who already had confirmed cases would have to get it too. I'd like to know what the differences are between the Pfizer and the Moderna. I have never had an allergic reaction to a vaccine, but I have I'm a very reaction. curious about um, why Colorado is it safe for nursing women. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. We'll take questions in real time. Use the Twitter hashtag AskCM. Again, AskCM on Twitter. The most common question we're hearing is, when do I get the vaccine? Understandable. And while we can't answer that for everyone, we can tell you how that's being decided, who's deciding, and how they're planning to reach out to communities hardest hit by COVID-19, including people of color. Hi, I'm Noelle King from NPR. After the year we've had, the prospect of a new year feels like both a relief and a daunting unknown. It might seem like a strange time to make New Year's resolutions when so much is in flux, but here at NPR, we're confident there's a resolution we can stick to. We'll bring you the news you need. Join us in this commitment by donating to this station now. Here's how to do it. It's quick and secure to make a tax-deductible year-end gift at CPR.org. Such simple words. One, two, three, poke. On Monday, a healthcare worker in Fort Collins was the first person in Colorado to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, the one from Pfizer. A second vaccine could be greenlit as soon as tomorrow. The natural question people are asking, when is it my turn? But that's definitely not the only question. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And for the next hour, we'll answer as many of your questions about Colorado's vaccine rollout as we can fit in. My colleague Avery Lill is going to help with that. We'll take your questions in real time this hour. Use the hashtag AskCM on Twitter. That's AskCM. I'll be keeping an eye on that feed. But so many of you have already shared your questions by email and voicemail. We have heard a lot about who will be prioritized to get the vaccine, but I've not heard how people will get the vaccine. Will our primary care doctors let us know when they have it and prioritize among their patients? Will we show up at the pharmacy and they will determine whether it is our turn yet or not? What entity or agency will actually decide who gets a COVID vaccine? So I'm incredibly curious about how the state is going to define essential workers. It can start getting into a gray zone pretty quickly. How? Are you ensuring that equity is centered in this work? I'm wondering what the plans are for getting it distributed to the very rural areas of the state, like mine. Any questions we don't get to, we'll answer in the weeks and months to come. And you say weeks and months, Avery, because many Coloradans won't be vaccinated till summer, according to the state's plan. And our first guests helped craft that plan. Governor Jared Polis and Dr. Anuj Mehta of Denver Health and Hospitals. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Governor, indeed, the most burning questions for people are about their place in line. Who decides when I get my shot? How will I find out? And who's going to administer it? So why don't we take that in pieces the state set some basic priorities. This winter, it's generally healthcare workers, the staff and residents of nursing homes, and first responders. So that's phase one. 
In the spring, phase two, things get more complicated. Looking at that priority list, it has seven bullet points, starting with everybody in the state over age 65, anybody with chronic medical conditions. And then it mentions, among others, grocery workers, teachers, people in crowded workplaces like meatpacking plants. Do you know which of those groups will go first at this point? So right now, we have the Pfizer vaccine in our state. We're hoping that the Moderna vaccine will arrive next week. So we received uh, over 40,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine, uh, 46,800. We're expecting 95,600 Moderna next week. Uh, This initial prioritization are people, healthcare workers, but within the realm of healthcare workers, it's not everybody who works in healthcare. It's folks who work in and around COVID-19 patients. Uh, And then nursing homes and nursing home staff, uh, which are often the the way they can be brought into a nursing home. So that is what is occurring now, likely will continue into January until that is done. And then the focus will be on healthcare workers with less direct contact with COVID workers, people in hospice and and dentists, uh, and and some of the other first responders that are uh, critical in the COVID-19 response. It does seem to get a bit trickier, though as the new phases come on board, phases two and three. And I think there are a lot of Coloradans wondering, if I'm a teacher, am I ahead of somebody in a meatpacking plant? Uh, If I'm in a meatpacking plant, am I ahead of someone in a grocery store? How are you working that out? Who's working that out? I really have two guiding principles uh, in this work. The first is save lives. Uh, and you are far more likely to save the life of a 70- or 80-year-old with a vaccine than you are a 20-, 25-year-old. The second goal is, of course, end the pandemic. So you can either optimize for reducing the transmission of the virus, in which case you would generally prioritize workers in their 20s and 30s who see a lot of people, or you can optimize for saving lives, in which case you would uh, focus on people in their 70s and 80s. Um, The trajectory of this virus, just to give you a statistic, Ryan, it's so stark how this affects people differently at different ages. If you're 20 to 24, you have um, uh, just a a, a 0.006% chance of succumbing to this virus if you get it. If you're 65 to 69, you're just over a 1% chance. If you're 75 to 79, 3.2% of those who contract the virus pay the ultimate price. And if you're 80 plus, it's 8.2%. So uh, just to see that trajectory, not, not even a, it's not five times more risky. It's not 10 times more risky. It's 100 times more risky and then even 1,000 times more risky if you're getting the difference between a 20-year-old and a and an 80-year-old, a thousand times more likely to death. So we want to save lives and we want to end the pandemic. And that really informs the prioritization. Okay, so that is your framing for who gets what when. Dr. Mehta, will people have to get this shot annually? Is it going to be like the flu shot? Um, At this point, we really don't know. The data from the Pfizer and the Moderna trials suggests that immunity is very strong even five months after the second dose of either vaccine. But really, we need to wait a little bit longer to see what happens in long-term follow-up to tell us how long the immunity is going to last. And is this something where the two shots are enough? Do you have to get it every year? Or is it something like the tetanus shot where you need to get it every five or 10 years? We just don't know right now. And that this is where um, we need to look to science and rely on the data. 
Governor Polis, Avery Lill here. You heard that listener at the very top ask if they if they're, they'll get their shots at the doctor's office, a pharmacy. How do you answer that? Well, yes, yes, and yes. Um, so it's all of the above. The way this will look after widespread dissemination, when we're no longer quantity constrained uh, and, and everybody who wants it can access it, which is likely to be next summer at some point, this will be as easy to get as a flu shot. So think in the future, this is easy to get. Right now, this is being distributed to hospitals, to nursing homes directly. Uh, the next phase will be broader in the, in the, in the, in the way it's set up. Um, it's easy to identify over 65. It's a little bit harder the identification of some of the other categories. So when you look at whether you have a specific job or a specific pre-existing condition, uh, age is is simple, uh, and that'll also be a simple process if you are over 65 to be able to get it at a number of convenient locations that, that are convenient to you. So will a doctor contact a person, or does the person need to be proactive and ask about it or keep asking about it? Right now, again, it's going to hospitals for workers that are exposed to COVID, and nursing homes. If you live in a nursing home, you can certainly ask if they have a delivery date yet. Um, it's likely they only have the ones that are getting it next week right now. Uh, others don't know whether it's two weeks or three weeks away, uh, but they know that they are in early in the line for that. If you work at one of those, you will also get that um, uh, uh, that, that inoculation at work if you work at a nursing home. Um, as it expands to the general public, the first group of the general public will be the 65 and up. Uh, and that'll be widely available at a site convenient to you. Uh, of course, um, you know, it could, it could be your local hospital and could also be pharmacies. Um, and it'll be simple uh, with the screening based on age with people checking your state ID or driver's license for eligibility. And just a note that the scope we're dealing with here is more than 2 million Coloradans over 65 or who have chronic medical conditions. Uh, what about people who are uninsured, who don't have regular access to the healthcare system? How are you thinking about them, Governor? The vaccine is free for everybody. Uh, and now we are expecting, and, and one should never expect Congress to do their job, but uh, I, I put a little asterisk on that. The funding for the vaccine distribution will likely be included in the omnibus bill that Congress will be debating and passing this week. But pending that, uh, we will have the resources that are needed to make sure that Coloradans do not need to pay for the vaccine. And what if that omnibus bill is not passed? Well, then government shuts down and we're in a lot of trouble in a lot of ways. But uh, I, I think that it will, you know, everybody from President Trump to Speaker Pelosi to Leader McConnell have all expressed a desire to stay in Washington until they get it done. Uh, and I, you know, I have a high degree of confidence that they will. The nation is depending on it. And then one more question about that line that people are seeing themselves in. When the vaccine is in the general public, how will people know that they can go to one of those convenient locations to get the vaccine? Uh, this will be very easy to get. As I said, right now it's site-based. So it's, it's hospitals providing it to their employees who are working COVID wards. It's nursing homes for their residents and for their workers. Um, as that expands, first responders, healthcare workers with some contact with COVID patients, that'll also largely be site-based. When we get to the mass phase, over 65 
people with pre-existing conditions, uh, people who work in certain frontline industries. Uh, it'll be available through the way that they interact with the healthcare system, meaning community health clinics and doctors, of course, and hospitals, also pharmacies. And we are even looking into at the state high-volume vaccination uh, temporary facilities like we have the drive-through testing the high volume. Uh, We're looking into whether that is the most cost-effective way or simply to use uh, the existing pharmacy infrastructure. Remember, you don't need a doctor uh, or even a nurse to conduct this. It can be a phlebotomist, a pharmacist who's qualified, uh, a paramedic, anybody who's qualified to give a vaccination is qualified to give this one. I also think that, um, you know, when we get to the mass uh, general population, you know, most physicians, most pharmacies already have methods of communicating with their patients. I got an email when my doctor got the flu vaccine in stock. Granted, I got it at work, but I was notified. And same thing with uh, C- uh, CVS and Walgreens. They have methods of communicating with patients. And so I think those typical routine communication methods, when it's available to everybody, will be utilized to ensure that people know about it and know where to get it. All right. Let's and, 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 and I would just add the over sixty five is a subset of everybody. That's the, that's the mass level. When we reach that that two million, because they they're prioritized because of the higher risk over the other three million Coloradans, uh, that will be the mass level stage, and it'll largely be through providers with other options. And uh, doctor, I, I'm just curious: could the first shot I get be from Pfizer and the other one Moderna? I think that's a question that a lot of people have, and I think it's really important that everybody knows that the two shots have to be from the same manufacturer. So you need either two doses of the Pfizer vaccine separated by 21 days or two doses of the Moderna vaccine separated by 28 days. You can't interchange them from one dose to the next. All right. Avery, you have a listener question. I do. When the vaccine was first administered in England before it came to the U.S., there were reports that a couple of people had strong, dangerous allergic reactions. Here's a question from listener Marla Jacobson. I have never had an allergic reaction to a vaccine, but I had a severe reaction to the shingles vaccine earlier this fall. I would like information as specific types of allergic reactions people have had and what the specific treatments are that they offer. I am 65. I have rheumatoid arthritis, and this is very important to me in deciding whether or not to take this vaccine. Dr. Mehta, what about other side effects? The vaccine has been tested in record time. Tell us what, can you answer this listener's question and talk about the possibility that we'll get a few weeks or months into this and realize there is a serious problem? Yeah, I think the allergy question is obviously very important. The two nurses that had the allergic reaction in the UK were treated very quickly and are doing quite well from the reports that I've heard. Allergic reactions are part and parcel of every vaccine and every medication. So that's what That's what it is when you take a foreign substance into your body. That being said, in the clinical trials, the rates of allergic reactions were exceedingly low, um, less than half a percentage point um, uh, for the Pfizer and slightly higher for Moderna. And the majority of them were kind of a simple rash. So the CDC is currently recommending that if you've ever had a severe allergic reaction to an injection medication, so a reaction where your throat closes to a medication that was injected to you, Um, then maybe wait a couple of weeks before you get the vaccine. Very quickly, 
we will have millions of people vaccinated in the United States and we'll know kind of where the risk is around the allergy, um, around allergies. If you've had a food-based allergy, if you take a penicillin and you get a little bit itchy, those are not people that should worry about it. But that's also why people with um, everybody that gets the vaccine is going to be monitored for a short time afterwards. And simple treatments like Benadryl or Claritin or Zyrtec are actually sufficient to manage almost all allergic reactions except the most extreme types. I want to note, uh, Governor Bolas, that you've had COVID-19, and that leads somewhat naturally to a question we're also hearing. Uh, Doctor, if you'd like to answer this first, if someone has had COVID-19, should they also be vaccinated? Um, so I think that once you've had COVID-19, you have a little bit of immunity for a couple of months afterwards to reinfection. But the trials, while they didn't include people that had had COVID, they actually found out afterwards that some people had had COVID in the past. So we know that the vaccines, both Moderna and Pfizer, are safe and effective in people that have had COVID-19. So really, the delay is if you've had COVID in the last three months, maybe wait a little bit of time so somebody with no immunity can actually get the vaccine. As of now, there are no additional safety or efficacy concerns about somebody that's had COVID-19. So I'm advising all of my patients that have had COVID-19 to get the vaccine if it's been more than 30, excuse me, more than 90 days since they've uh, since they were infected. So, Governor, I imagine at a certain point you'll get the vaccine. Yes, okay. uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and I will do that publicly and, and have uh, let, let, let people take pictures of it. And uh, I, you know, I just as I did with the flu vaccine this year. So I, as you know, just recently experienced COVID. But after, um, as the doctor said, after a, a cooling off period of, of uh, you know, a month or two or, or three, we will absolutely get it. I want to make sure that I uh, demonstrate to people that I have full confidence in it. And of course, I want to be protected for my family as well. Let's take another listener question. A reminder for folks listening, you can tweet with a hashtag AskCM, and we're answering these questions in real time. This one's from Alan Meyer. He asks how the state will roll out the COVID-19 vaccine in a way that addresses alarming racial disparities. He thinks the state could use its impressive emergency powers to this end, and he wants to know in a lot more detail than window dressing about prioritization level. Governor? So our, our initial research shows an alarming um, skepticism of the vaccine in the African-American community in particular, uh, secondarily the Hispanic community. So we have a specific outreach plan to inspire confidence. It's not uh, me or uh, uh, even the doctor as the main messengers. It's community leaders and faith leaders in those communities. So we are convening them and we are working with them to establish a higher degree of confidence uh, in communities of color. Um, access being the second piece, confidence and access. Uh, on the access piece, uh, community health clinics are part of this work, uh, as well as uh, we're already talking about kind of the multilingual aspect to the outreach uh, as well. CDPHE, the Colorado Department for Public Health and Environment, has also developed a Champions for Vaccine Equity group. So this is a group of medical experts that um, are going to community leaders and educating them about the vaccine, meeting with community members where they are virtually um, at this point uh, to try and dispel some of the misinformation and disinformation and try and build more trust. And I have the privilege of actually being one of the vaccine equity champions. You know, it's interesting when you look at the phased rollout that the state has come up with, it, it in no way says that people of color who have been hardest hit should be earlier in line, that disproportionately hit communities ought to have some sort of priority. Why, why don't you see that when you look at 
the the rollout on the state's website. Governor. Well, I, I think this is an important distinction. Um, you are not uh, at a higher risk simply because of your race. It is not any biological aspect of race that places you higher at risk. There are certain things that correlate with race. Uh, that might be pre-existing conditions, uh, that might be um, the type of job you have. Yep. The, it, it is those that are that are proxies. And so when you're talking about, for instance, frontline workers or you're talking about people uh, that might be exposed, those might correlate uh, with the different uh, racial composition as the general population. But it is not inherently anything biological about race that has any impact on this virus. There's no evidence for that. On Twitter, we're getting a lot of questions about prioritization. One in particular, B. Brody asked, where are incarcerated people and people in detention centers on the rollout plan? Uh, they are wherever they they should be because of their prioritization status. So they are not given, if you will, an advantage or a disadvantage because of their status as detainees uh, and those that are vulnerable will be prioritized, meaning the goal is saving lives. Uh, rather than just preventing cases and healthy 25-year-olds, which we also want to do. But you are far, you know, as we talked about, a thousand times, a thousand times more likely to succumb to this virus if you're 75 than 22. Uh, and, and the prioritization takes that into account. People who are incarcerated or in detention, though, are in essentially congregate living. They're in a closed community, a lot like a nursing home. Does that, are, are you taking that into consideration in their prioritization? So people in congregate living could be college dorms, uh, agricultural worker dormitories, prisons, youth centers. Um, they are at lar- they are at a higher risk of contracting the virus, but the virus does not have a worse clinical outcome for them. That still correlates with their age and pre-existing conditions. So, uh, again, for all of those, uh, we'll call our college students more likely to get in the dorms. Yes. Is it as clinically worrisome or does it have anything close to the fatality rate in the dorm that it has in a nursing home? No. Uh, now, if, in our prisons, we have people of all ages, and so it's distinguishing between those who are at the greatest risk. And then, of course, everybody will have it soon enough. But, you know, in those few months, we can save lives by prioritizing those who are more likely to succumb to the virus. This vaccine uh, has to be kept at a very cold temperature, uh, and I know that that leads to all sorts of concerns about rural distribution and whether there are the facilities to support the vaccine. Dr. Maddox, can you reflect on that uh, in the last few seconds here? Yeah. So the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at negative 80 degrees Celsius, but it can be stored at standard uh, freezer temperatures for up to five days. And Moderna can be at standard freezer temperatures for up to 30 days. So that is going to enable us to deliver the vaccine to more rural communities in a very highly effective way. And it's been a very critical part of CDPHE's planning process. I mean, we heard one person say, you know, your access to the vaccine could depend on your zip code. You're not you're saying that's not the case. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I mean, obviously, early on now, healthcare workers, nursing homes. So that is going to depend on where you work and if you're in a nursing home. As we roll it out, the goal is to have equitable geographic, racial, and racial and ethnic distribution throughout the entire state. Dr. Anuj Mehta of Denver Health and Hospitals. I understand you'll stick around as people have more questions. Again, Avery Lil monitoring AskCM, the hashtag on Twitter. And uh, we'll bid you farewell. Governor Jared Polis, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And remember to get vaccinated as soon as you have the opportunity. All right. We'll talk about the next vaccine on the horizon, the Moderna vaccine after a break. It's a special Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Every street has stories, and every year, Denverite tells a few during our street week. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and this week we're pounding the pavement of Denver's Bruce Randolph Avenue. Look for profiles of folks we meet there, some standout restaurants in the neighborhood, and a dive into the life of the man who gave Bruce Randolph Avenue its name and its heart. Check out Street Week and sign up for our daily newsletter at denverite.com. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A second COVID-19 vaccine from Moderna is almost ready for prime time, and its latest trials included more than 200 Coloradans. Among them, Dr. Lisa Wynn and her husband, Charles, who live in Parker. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Appreciate your time. And from UC Health, lead investigator Dr. Thomas Campbell joins us. He's also a professor of infectious disease at the CU School of Medicine. And uh, welcome, Dr. Campbell. Hi, thank you for having me. Listeners, you can also remember that if you have questions about the Moderna vaccine and how vaccines are tested, use the hashtag AskCM on Twitter. We're monitoring that channel and answering some of those questions on this show. So, Dr. Campbell, this phase three study was placebo-controlled, double-blind, which means no one really knew who got the real deal. Uh, 30,000 participants nationwide, 217 in Colorado. What type of folks did you recruit for the Moderna vaccine and why? So the uh, purpose of the Moderna phase three trial was to determine if this vaccine was both safe and effective for preventing symptomatic uh, COVID illness. And so uh, to do that, number one, we wanted to recruit people who were at increased risk of exposure to SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes Mm -hmm. COVID-19. Second, we wanted to uh, recruit people who had uh, increased risk of developing COVID illness after being exposed to the virus. And the third thing, and perhaps uh, one of the most important things, was we wanted to recruit uh, a diverse group of people that represented the people who are at risk of of COVID-19 in the state of Colorado. Okay. So you uh, absolutely tried to pick people who might be more vulnerable to this disease. I want to remind folks that the Moderna vaccine is also a two-shot series. And remind us how far apart those shots come, doctor. Uh, Yeah, the Moderna vaccine is given uh, four weeks apart. So uh, day one and day 29. Okay. Just briefly, a lot of questions that we've gotten about whether if I only take the vaccine once, I don't get the second shot, what does that mean? Well, what that means is you probably get some benefit and some protection, but you don't get full protection. Uh, From the data that we've seen, both for Moderna and for the Pfizer vaccines, uh, people who did uh, get one shot had some protection after that one shot, uh, but uh, much higher levels of protection came after getting the second shot. So it's very important uh, for everybody to get uh, both doses. Then assuming that folks get both doses, so far the Moderna vaccine is 94% efficacious in preventing symptoms. Leslie Chicoin on Twitter asks for a quick discussion of efficacy and adds, if the vaccine is 90% effective, that means you could still get sick after taking it, but if enough of us take it, it stops the spread of the virus. Does she have that right? And what does success for the vaccine look like for the individual and the community? 
Yeah, so we, what we know uh, for both of these vaccines is that they are 94 to 95% uh, efficacious in preventing COVID illness. We don't yet know whether these vaccines prevent transmission uh, uh, to uh, other individuals. That's something that we will uh, learn uh, in the coming months. What we also know is that among the few people who get uh, uh, sick after getting the vaccine, who get uh, symptomatic uh, COVID, that the symptoms are much less severe than the people who uh, received the uh, placebo. Uh, in, uh, and so highly effective in both preventing symptomatic illness, but if you do get symptomatic illness, the symptoms are much less and you don't end up in the hospital. I mean, that's how I think of the flu shot, that it doesn't necessarily mean I won't get the flu, but that I'll have a milder experience. So that's helpful. Charles, Lisa, you're both patients in the UC system, which is actually how you got invited to participate in this trial. But I understand that you each reacted differently when you got the email offer. Um, Charles, what was your first thought at the invitation? Uh, yeah, we did. <laughs> my reaction was to delete the email <laughs> and just move on. Uh, you know, I think my perspective was really just driven from the idea that someone else will do it. Um, and I don't want to be first in line, that kind of perspective. But as I'm sure Lisa will share with you, uh, uh, I, I, I came to uh, have greater wisdom on my uh, <laughs> position. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lisa, you're, a, I just want to say, an OBGYN. You obviously have a medical background thus, and uh, you, you had a different view of this. Absolutely. I think having vaccines available is so important to get us out of this pandemic. And I was excited for Charles when he got the email, and I wanted to join in the study. And so many of us knew that UC Health was going to be included in the Moderna uh, trial and we had asked if we could participate. And when Charles had his meeting with Dr. Campbell, he graciously let me join in the fun. So here I am, an enthusiastic participant. Join in the fun. Okay. Uh, what's it like not knowing if you got the real thing or the placebo? Like, how do you deal with that mentally, Charles? Um, it's, uh, that's a great question. It, it's, it's, this is such a momentous period in time. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, I've used the analogy uh, several times. It's kind of like, you know, Willy Wonka and you're waiting for that golden ticket and you're hoping that you, you uh, um, actually um, already have the vaccine as opposed to having the, the, the placebo. But um, so it's just it's, it's excitement to, to know that we're close to finding out either way. Either way. I, I guess I, I just want to underscore something. I mean, based on what you told us, Dr. Campbell, that even if you get the COVID-19 vaccine, you should still wear a mask. You should still social distance right right now. That's correct. Uh, again, uh, we, we don't know if um, these vaccines prevent asymptomatic infection. We're going to learn that in, uh, in the coming months uh, as well. Uh, and if people do get asymptomatically infected, it's possible that they could still shed the virus and, uh, and expose other people to it. So these public health measures of wearing masks and social distancing still need to be in place in, until we're told otherwise. Lisa, Charles, did you have any skepticism going into this of the vaccine, of the medical establishment itself and its history? And, and how did you deal with that? I'll start. I had some skepticism just because this is a new technology that we haven't 
had in a vaccine that's been widely available. So I certainly was a little concerned about that. And like so many people, it's been a very quick timeline from when we initially came in contact with SARS-CoV-2 to having a vaccine. So there was definitely skepticism from that perspective. But in terms of safety and ethical practices in medical research, as a physician and as part of UC Health, I had the utmost confidence that that piece of it would be handled in an excellent and ethical fashion, which it has been. Charles, do you have a different view on that? I wouldn't say different. Um, I had a 12-year-old boy's view of this, which is, wow, it would be great if I could get superpowers from this. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, um, barring that, uh, and there was no concern, and I'll tell you why. It was really um, right from the beginning, the... um, the explanation that Dr. Campbell and his team explained in terms of um, uh, the, the, the you know the potential risk and uh, the the science behind what was utilized to get to this point uh, gave me a lot of, of comfort and um, I, I, I've been amazed uh, as I've gone through this and learned of exactly how much has been accomplished that this is a new. Um, uh, uh, path that we're going down in terms of how vaccines are delivered. And it, it's been, um, quite honestly, uh, as a layperson, it's been um, amazing. We are getting questions from listeners, and we have one from Rebecca Buris of Littleton. I am wondering how the vaccine um, works with women who are pregnant or women who are breastfeeding. If they had any of those in the trial period, I'd be really curious about that. Dr. Campbell and Dr. Wynn, I think this could be a question for both of you. Well, I I can start. And um, what I can say is both the Moderna and Pfizer uh, trials did not allow women who were pregnant to join the studies. Um, However, in both trials, women did become pregnant during the course of, uh, of the trials. There are about, I think, 22 or so in the Pfizer trial. Um, somewhat less in the Moderna trial. Um, we uh, do not, uh, we have not seen any evidence of any adverse pregnancy outcomes uh, related uh, to uh, pregnancy amongst those small number of women. Uh, we don't have uh, information on breastfeeding, but we have no reason to expect that uh, anything about this vaccine uh, would be harmful to babies who are breastfed. In just the last few seconds, uh, the timeline of this vaccine, as we know, has been uh, one of the fastest, if not the fastest in history, both these vaccines. Should that be of concern to people who might take it, uh, to people who are weighing this decision, Dr. Campbell? Well, I think it's important that everyone understand uh, what the reasons are for having such a a rapid timeline. And, And there's multiple reasons that play into that including the um, availability of technology, not just to create the vaccines, but the technology that allowed the virus, SARS-CoV-2, to be rapidly identified uh, and the the complete genetic code of the virus uh, uh, determined and and widely disseminated. Uh, A second uh, important factor is that um, one of the reasons that these uh, we got an answer so quick for these vaccines is that we're in the middle of a raging pandemic of, uh, uh, of COVID-19, particularly here in the United States. So people who joined the trials got sick at rates that were much faster than mm. anyone expected. 
that allowed us to get the uh, the answer faster. And I, then I, I would also say, yeah, just that in the last few seconds here, tremendous support, public support, and people like the Winds coming forward to join these trials allowed the trials to get started at very fast pace. I think what so I lots of things. Yeah, I hear. I think what I hear you saying is that this is not about sloppiness. This is about a lot of different factors that contributed. Uh, to the the pace of this. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate all of your time. Thank You're you. You're very welcome. Heard from Dr. Thomas Campbell, lead investigator on Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine test site at UC Health. That vaccine could be approved for emergency use any time now. We also heard from two participants in the trial. They're from Parker, Charles, and Dr. Lisa Wynn. We know communities of color are more likely to contract and die from COVID-19 for a variety of factors. Now, leaders within those communities wonder if the vaccine rollout will reflect these disparities. If this is a subject you have thoughts or questions about, tweet us using the hashtag AskCM. Maybe that was someone doing that right now, Avery Lil. <laughs> Joining us, uh, Dr. Jandel Allen Davis. She's president of Craig Hospital in Denver and has been working to address racial inequities in the healthcare system. Doctor, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So a recent survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that a significant portion of Black and Hispanic adults are not confident that the vaccine development has taken their needs into account. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a a number of reasons, and having uh, looked at that study as well, um, they're mostly born and rooted in historical treatment and the experience of uh, Black patients, Black uh, members of the community in the healthcare system, um, perceived of as mistreatment, undertreatment, there are access to care issues, and certainly we've got this historical um, legacy of some of the ways that we have been uh, treated in um, trials, clinical trials and research trials. And so there's a sense that African-Americans and other people of color, but vis-a-vis the question you asked, um, that we are um, guinea pigs. And we've even heard some of that language and some of the surveys that have been done around uh, vaccine acceptance for COVID-19. So that's a reflection of the history, but it is also a feeling and an experience in the current moment. I think that latter portion is really important to understand. Yes. Yes. It's, um, you know, it's an, it's an, it's a funny place or, or actually an unfortunate place. I'd say that we find ourselves that where we are about 13% of the population in the United States and about 21% of the deaths and where we also find, um, ourselves being, uh, I don't know that disproportionately, but certainly overrepresented in the essential uh, workers part of things, which means that we are far more likely to be exposed or have access or opportunity to be exposed to the virus. So, you know, the combination of that coupled with sort of the experience of even how people um, are treated uh, now coming into emergency departments with respect to, to covid you know, we've heard these stories across the country, just continues to uh, reinforce and engender the mistrust that's been there for um, for decades. Decades, really, Gener- for generations, generations, for generations right. yeah. You mentioned essential workers, and uh, a question we're getting a lot of is exactly how they will be prioritized, and that remains unclear down to the individual level. Also on the line with us is Maggie Gomez. She's deputy director of the Center for Health Progress in Denver. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Ryan. Uh, what uh, the doctor described uh, may mean in these communities, um, 
that there just won't be as high a vaccination rate. Uh, How can state and local officials use this as an opportunity to build trust? That's a really great question. I want to thank you for having me and thank Jen Dell for being here. I also just want to take a really quick moment to thank all of our healthcare workers, first responders, public servants, and all of those essential workers who are out there saving lives and working so hard to keep us safe during these unprecedented times. We are all grateful for your service and sacrifice. And as Jen Dell mentioned, the United States has a long documented and painful history of racism in healthcare and the public health system. And so we know through that, that vaccinations have been weaponized against people of color and black people specifically. And so those are, you know, those create long-term consequences that are still negatively affecting these communities today. So, so there are no magic words that can build trust and erase centuries of neglect and abuse of black, indigenous, and other people of color. And we must acknowledge that and keep this in the forefront of how we engage with the community around vaccinations. Governor Polis earlier responded to a listener question about racial inequities in COVID-19 and health care and how a vaccine rollout could take that into account. The governor said that he talked about trust building and access for communities of colors and specifically the black community. What did you think about his answer, doctor? You know, the, the, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And actually, there was a JAMA perspective that was published just uh, the end of last month. Um, that talked about the issue of trust, and it really has to begin with trustworthiness. And I think that while um, there's actually some reason, honestly, to be optimistic in that we've watched the, the, the likelihood of, of Black Americans and other people of color, but in particular Black Americans saying they're more likely to, to uh, t- take the vaccine, go from 40% in the spring up to about 60% most recently. Um, but this whole issue of trustworthiness Um, is really about who delivers the message. We've got to be incredibly community-based in terms of um, who it is, who are the trusted brokers, uh, information within those communities, and making sure that those folks are armed with credible, actionable information as they go into communities. So this does include community-based organization, includes uh, the faith leaders in community, uh, community organizers, um, uh, could be community health centers that are very community-based and um, are therefore uh, staffed by people who might be a better reflection of the communities that uh, we serve. Uh, But it's going to be incredibly difficult to think that um, frankly, even elected leaders, whether they're a city council or other, unless they're super well-known in those communities, are going to necessarily be trusted brokers. So it's going to take mm. a different kind of connecting, connecting in my view, um, and connectedness. And then with respect to trustworthiness, that's really a, a go-forward thing. It has to do with how we do um, enroll folks in trials, um, what kind of, how we do informed consent um, in a way that uh, assures that people are truly understanding because we're speaking mm. um, um, in in their um, the, in ways that they understand, and so this is something that we ought to. It's another good thing that could come out of this horrible, dark period we're in. Is how we do this kind of work differently in the future to build um, right. you know, long-lasting trust with those communities. So it's this idea that trust is earned; it is not owed. Yes, absolutely. Maggie, do you want to share just a few thoughts on the kinds of folks who ought to be uh, articulating this message? Absolutely. Um, we know who is asking communities to get vaccinated and how they're asking is just as important as what they're asking. 
the most effective ways to reach any community and specifically communities of color is through trusted members and voices from that community. So these could be, you know, local community leaders, as, as Jendel mentioned, they could be community organizers or faith leaders, even healthcare providers of color. But we, we know that language and cultural background within the unique local context is critical. So not only do messages need to be in all languages and formats, written and spoken for different literacy levels, but they also need to be steeped in the cultural norms and values of that community. Is Colorado good yeah. at getting the message out in other languages? There's always room for growth and improvement, for sure. Um, just going through a Google Translate or having a rough translation isn't good enough. And so we know that we really need to work with folks who are native, you know, ex-language speakers and can also make sure that we're using the, the correct and proper literacy levels. And again, making sure that it's just not written or accessible via internet, that it's also being channeled through um, different avenues through which people are already connected to, trust, and are listening. Right. And I think an important thing around um, the vaccinations is that we're asking people to share some personal identifying information, which is a pretty big concern, especially for immigrants. We know that there's a recorded pattern of government agencies using that information against people. And communities shouldn't have to worry that they're risking family separation or even deportation to get the vaccine. So we need to make sure that whatever information is collected, um, that there is hard limits and that folks understand that. Just as important as letting people know the vaccine is free and safe is letting people know that they're safe to share information, which is important data that can allow us to target vaccination distributions to communities hit hardest by COVID. Again, this is where a long history of mistrust can get in the way of what we need to do. All right. Well, I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much. So you heard from Maggie Gomez, Deputy Director of the Center for Health Progress. Also, Dr. Jandel Allen Davis. She's president of Craig Hospital and has done a fair amount of work in the a question of racial disparities in medicine. So we should note that not everyone in Colorado is subject to the state's distribution plan. Avery Lill has been reporting on the Indian Health Services vaccine rollout. That's right. Quick background, IHS is a federal agency. It's responsible for providing health services primarily to citizens of tribal nations. And that's based in large part on treaties those nations have with the U.S. IHS providers both on tribal lands and in cities could choose to get the vaccine from the state or IHS. In Colorado, Denver Indian Health and Family Services, Southern Ute Health Center, Ute Mountain Ute Health Center, and White Mesa Health Station all chose to get vaccines from IHS. Okay, that was a choice. They went with the feds. And how will the rollout for these facilities look different from, you know, others in the state? Well, IHS respects tribal sovereignty when it's working with these facilities to determine who gets the vaccine first. For example, in the Cherokee Nation, first language Cherokee speakers will be among the first to get vaccinated after healthcare workers. Last week, I spoke with Karen Hoffman, who directs primary care for Denver Indian Health and Family Services. She told me that relatively few of their patients are in long-term care facilities, hmm. which means they may be able to begin vaccinating elders relatively early. She also told me that they made an initial request for a thousand doses, but they expect to receive far less. Uh, we also know, Avery, that indigenous folks in Colorado face disproportionately high death rates from COVID-19. That's true. And Hoffman raised another important equity piece that we've heard just previously. American Indian and Alaska Native communities have been subject to medical and research abuses in the past. So she's also hearing distress from her patients about the new vaccine, who worry that if they take it, that they could be part of an experiment. 
Well, thanks for that perspective. I know you've been reporting on that subject. You have also, Avery Lil, been keeping your eyes on our Twitter thread as folks use the hashtag AskCM. And we thought we'd take just the last few seconds here to pose some questions to Dr. Anuj Mehta from Denver Health, who stuck around. We have lots of questions. This one, how critical is the four-week period for the Moderna or the three-week period for Pfizer when I received my shingles vaccine? It took more than a year to get the second shot due to a shortage. And we also received another email from a listener who asks, um, if you when, from the moment you get the vaccine, when does the immunity start? So, Dr. Mehta, how would you answer those questions? Great question. We only have recommendations for the Pfizer vaccine at this point. The FDA and the CDC will meet about Moderna later on this week. So for Pfizer, they there's kind of a four-day grace window, uh, four days before to up to four days after that 21-day mark that you can get the second dose. And every dose that we're receiving in Colorado is paired with a second dose so that the federal government and the manufacturers are holding back. So there shouldn't be any issues at this point of getting a second dose. And I don't think we're going to vaccinate people unless we have those two doses available for them. Wendy Froelich asks, what conditions are considered high risk in relation to the virus and getting the vaccine? I know diabetes is one. What are the others? Yeah, so we're constantly learning more about the virus, and I work in the intensive care unit, so I see these patients on a regular basis through my job. Um, But obesity, uh, diabetes, chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, individuals with cancer, all of these are at high risk for developing severe COVID. So being hospitalized, ending up in the ICU, or even dying from COVID. And so that's why these are a priority group when we're considering who should be in line to get the vaccine. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you so much. Dr. Anuj Mehta from Denver Health uh, joining us to answer your questions about the COVID-19 vaccine. Tomorrow on Colorado Matters, vaccine communication. How can we carry messages forward? Looking forward to that, Avery. And before we go, just a few seconds on the origin of the word vaccine. The root is Latin for cow, like vache in French or baca in Spanish. Why? Because the early use of the cowpox virus defied smallpox. All right, special thanks to producers Michelle P. Fulcher, Carla Jimenez, Paolo Chalceda, and Alexandra McMahon. Carl Bielek is our executive producer. With Avery Lill, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.